0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 24. We are looking at seven parables that Jesus gave in a boat near Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. The last audio, he gave the parable of the sower and the seed. We'll start in verse 24 and read 24 through 26 another parable put he forth upon them saying the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field but while men slept his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way but when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit then appeared the tares also the tares of course are weeds in the modern translations they say weeds i'm using the king james here so this is the parable of the wheat and the tares or the parable of the weeds now jesus will explain what this parable means of verses 36 through 43, which we'll get to in this audio. Let's briefly look at it, though. The kingdom of heaven is a reference to the church on earth only, not because there aren't going to be any tares in heaven. So he's referring to the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Of course, the man who's sowing good seed is Jesus or Jesus's disciples and the field. Now, what is the field? Well, Jesus is going to tell us later on in, later on in the passage that the field refers to the world. He's going to tell us what it means. And I'll tell you that right now because so many people say it's the church. But Jesus says, no, it's the world. It's not the church. But while men slept, his enemy, that's the devil, came and saw tares, that's evil fruit, among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade, the wheat, came forth out of the ground and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. And, of course, you can't tell wheat from tares when they're first planted, until time goes on and they've grown up some. Now, Matthew 13:38 is where Jesus says the field is the world. Let me read that to you. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are children of the wicked one. Now what are the options of this field? As I said, many people say it's the church, the visible church throughout the world, which has believers in it, the wheat, and also has unbelievers in it, because the visible church has people who are false professors, who are hypocrites, and so forth. But Jesus didn't say it was the church. He said it was the world. He didn't say the field was the church. He said the field was the world. So why should we try to interpret away the plain meaning of what Jesus said in verse 38 in Matthew 13? Why are people so intent on saying the field is the church? Because the Reformed have this this very strong Reformed theological people, have this very strong theological conviction of what they call the visible church, as opposed to the invisible church. The invisible church is all those who believe the visible church is the church on earth, which consists of a saved and unsaved membership, and we're never going to have a church that is 100% believers. We're always going to have hypocrites in it, and we're not able to get rid of all the hypocrites. Therefore, we have wheat and tares, and if you try too hard to get rid of the tares and, and examine people to see if they really believe, pretty soon you go end up hurting innocent people, with the wheat, and you will rip the church apart. That's not what Jesus meant, in my humble opinion. For one thing, Jesus tells us about church discipline. We are supposed to kick people out of the church. We are supposed to distinguish evil from good people in the church. Every Christian society, says Adam Clark, how pure soever its principles may be, has its bastard wheat. Well, that's true, but it's up to the rest of the wheat to get rid of the bastard wheat. That's what church discipline is all about. So this is what I don't, why I don't like this interpretation that the field of the church is because it cuts against church discipline. And I do believe in church discipline. Adam Clark says this about the enemy sowing seed. This is no marvel. If we find scandals arising suddenly to discredit a work of grace where God has begun to pour out his spirit, I wish Adam Clark had lived in America if you want to know about scandals. At first, the weeds look like wheat when they first grow up, as I said, but then as a while, after a while, they end up becoming tares, and you can see the difference. And so there's a time when you're going to have to separate the wheat and the tares. So let's go on to verse 27 in Matthew 13 and read 27, 28, and 29. So the servants of the householder, and the householder here is referring to Jesus. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field from whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy, that's the devil, hath done this. The servant said unto him, "Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? In other words, are we going to go get these nasty tares that are in our church, the children of the evil one? But he, the householder, Jesus, said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them, because the roots of the wheat and the tares mix together, and if you pull up the tares, you'll pull up the wheat with it. Now, as I said, I don't believe this refers to wheat and tares in the church. Here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown says about this and its effect on church discipline. But to stretch this so far as to justify allowing openly scandalous persons to remain in the communion of the church is to wrest the teaching of this parable to other than its proper design and go in the teeth of apostolic injunctions. And Jameson Fawcett Brown referred to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13 verses where... The Corinthian man was sleeping with his stepmother and Paul said, get together and kick his rear end out of the church. Now, if that's not separating the wheat from the tares, I don't know what is. So there you have an example in the scriptures of where wheat and tares were separated. So I don't believe because of what Jesus said that the field, that the the field was the world, not the church. And because there is church discipline enjoined in the New Testament, both by Jesus and by Paul, this cannot refer to wheat and tares being in the church. It has to refer to wheat and tares being in the world. All right, well, if that's true, what then is Jesus referring to? Well, first of all, before we get into that, let's point out that overzealous disciples can become fanatical, and Jesus is trying to warn against fanaticism here, trying to, shall we say, eminentize the eschaton, take things as they should be in the in the final state and put them down here on earth where there is evil and where it is impossible to establish any kind of a utopia down here. Well, here's an example of overzealous disciples. Luke chapter 9 verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Consume some people who weren't doing what James and John wanted, so they were asking for fire. Jameson Fawcett Brown said, in this kind of zeal, there is usually a large mixture of carnal heat, I should say. All right. Now, before I get on to my interpretation of what this parable actually, mean, actually means, let's point out that there is some truth to overzealous. To, to, there, there, there are problems with overzealous practices of church discipline. You could start disciplining things that shouldn't be disciplined. Somebody is not living as godly a life as you think he is, and so you think that he's not a believer. Well, and so you try to investigate, and pretty soon you tear his faith up, and then people defend him, and then they attack him, and you've ripped the church wide open. Well, sure, you shouldn't do that, but that's not what this parable is about, in my humble opinion. I think that what we need to do, if if a person has made a credible profession of faith, that's a common reformed expression that you hear a lot. Well, if a believer. If if a person has made a credible profession of faith, we believe him until he shows us otherwise. And it, a lot of times it's hard to tell. But if as long as he's making a credible profession of faith, we don't discipline him until he does something that's either immoral or um, heretical or something like that. He should be left alone until he does something that shows he's a tear. And then when he just, and, and when it shows as a tear, we should re, we should kick him out just like Paul did, ask the Corinthians. to to do to the man who was sleeping with a stepmother. All right, let's go down to Matthew 13, verse 30. Let both grow until, together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first. That's the tares. I'm switching versions here to Holman Christian Study Bible. Gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but store the wheat in my barn. All right, first of all, when is this harvest? When the wheat and the tares are separated the most common opinion is it's the end of the planet Earth. That's the way most people take it. When Jesus comes to take care of all the tares, when he judges the world, he'll burn the tares up, and then he'll store the wheat in his barn, which means he'll take the Christians into heaven. The tares, of course, are burned up, so that means they go to hell. Well, that's easy enough. However, I'm going to give you a case that, that Jesus is not referring to the end of the world. He's referring to the end of the Jewish world, the end of the Jewish order, which, of course, happened in 87 and Judaism was destroyed in the Jewish war by the Roman Empire. And the purpose, according to this interpretation, is that Jesus is trying to warn his disciples, look, don't go around and join any kind of uh, military or police action against the Jews that are going to persecute you. Or don't do the same thing against the Romans, for that matter. Don't get involved in any kind of military activity you let me take care of the bad guys, and there's lots of bad guys, and the Jews are going to persecute you, as he's already warned in chapter 9, I believe it was. He spent a lot of time warning the disciples about persecution. He's saying, but I'll take care of them. Don't you do it. Clark acknowledges this argument, even though he disagrees with it. Let me read you a quote here. Some learned men are of opinion that the whole of this parable refers to the Jewish state and people, and I'm not learned, but I do agree with that opinion. I think that's what he's talking about, And some learned men are of the opinion that the words sun to ionas," which are commonly translated the end of the world, should be rendered the end of the age, i.e. the end of the Jewish polity. That the words have this meaning in other places, there can be no doubt, and this may be their primary meaning here, but there are other matters in the parable which agree far better with the consummation of all things than with the end of the Jewish dispensation and polity. That's Gil, who says it's the end of the world, Clark says it's the end of the world too. I don't know. I think it is referring to the end of the age because, for one thing, the Olivet Discourse uses that same expression, age, the end of the age. And the King James, by the way, says world, which, is of course, completely is a bad translation. It it automatically decides the issue for us. It's the end of the world, the end of time. But the actual word there, ionos, is, ionos, is age, not world. So I believe that He's referring to the end of the Jewish age because he's trying to give the disciples practical guidance on how to there to govern themselves in this time when the Jewish order was about to be overthrown by God. He didn't want them to do it. He was going to do it. now. Well, whatever it is, the end of the world, the end of the age, it's talking about don't get involved in political movements, not churchism, but political movements. God will take care of things. Either he's going to take care of the Jews in 87. He's going to take care of the bad guys all over the world at the end of the world. Either way, Christians are not to get involved in military and political movements to try to establish the kingdom of God on earth before the time comes. It leads to nothing but disaster, utopia, the perennial heresy, a great book by Thomas Molnar. I suggest you all read it because Utopians, utopias, which are established among sinful people, inevitably, and I repeat, inevitably end up in tyranny and the destruction of human dignity and freedom. And so I believe this is what Jesus is saying. Notice that the wheat is stored in the barn, and the weeds are first tied in bundles and burned. Before the wheat gets in the barn, the wheat stands for believers, they get to see bad guys burn up and, that, and some people make the idea take the idea from this that the righteous will get to see the judgment of the, of the unrighteous to, so that they will know that justice has been reestablished in the universe and that God's kingdom is just and that justice has been meted out Matthew chapter 13 verses 31 through 32 He presented another parable to them, to them. Jesus is still in the boat now he's teaching this parable to the big crowd there at Capernaum on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the vegetables and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Now, before we get into the point of the parable, let's take this mustard seed. Jesus said it's the smallest of all seeds and a lot of skeptical people say well see there jesus was wrong and the bible is wrong because it's all seeds as a matter of fact there are seeds smaller than mustard seeds but not in judea as john gill points out it was the smallest seed in judea and that's probably what jesus was talking about or he could have been talking proverbially he could have said you know everybody says that mustard seeds the smallest seed even you know common people in their folklore and their proverbs could have said that even though they scientifically didn't know that seeds were smaller than that there's a whole bunch of theology on this, because I remember when I was at seminary, at Trinity Seminary, which broke away from Fuller Seminary, because Fuller Seminary denied the inspiration and inerrancy of the scripture, and they use this mustard seed argument right here, the people at Fuller, to say, see there, the Bible's got errors in it. I'll tell you who's got errors in it, it's people who go to Fuller Seminary. I don't know why they bother. And who say things like that, that the Bible's got errors in it. The Son of God did make a mistake. He knew what he was talking about. All right, let's get to the main point of the parable. The point is the, of the parable is the kingdom of heaven starts real small. Just Jesus, a carpenter, his fishermen, friends, people with no status, no money, no prestige, no military power, no nothing, no uh, intellectual power, no academic degrees, nothing. And they started a kingdom that's now spread all over the world. And this parable has come to pass. This is the fact I call this the post, post-millennial parable because post-millennialism says that the gospel will proceed all over the earth. It will not completely conquer the earth, but it will make such great inroads of the earth over the earth. And I've seen some post-mill say around 40% of the people saved. whatever. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But the point is... Hasn't this parable come true? Mustard seed—it's a huge tree, uh, and, it, and it says the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Uh, it's taller than all the vegetables. It's actually a tree. It started out a seed and became a tree so big that birds come in the sky and nest in its branches. Some people say the birds don't mean anything, and I don't think they mean anything myself. Some people say that they prob- maybe symbolize the nations of the world. But who knows? It doesn't matter. These trees, Palestinian farmers can make them grow to 10 feet tall, according to my NIV study Bible. Sometimes a tree actually was a symbol of nations. The, even if the birds aren't a symbol of the nations, sometimes a tree itself was a symbol. If we read it, uh, some scriptures that show this, Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 23. This is what the Lord God said. I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and plant it. I will pluck a tender spring sprig from its topmost shoots, and I will plant it on a high towering mountain. I will plant it on Israel's high mountain so that it may bear branches, produce fruit, and become a majestic cedar. Birds of every kind will nest under it, taking shelter in the shade of its branches. So there you have uh, a tree symbolizing Israel's prosperity that spreads out ezekiel thirty one sixteen says this, all the birds of the sky nested in its branches, and all the animals of the field gave birth beneath it beneath its boughs. All the great nations lived in its shade. so tree trees are often a symbol of prosperity of a nation. here, this is the mustard tree is a symbol of the prosperity of the kingdom of God as it spreads out all, all over the earth. Now, some people say, some commentators say that the parable of the mustard seed refers to the outward growth of the kingdom. And the next parable, which is the parable of the leaven in the bread, refers to the inward growth of the kingdom. I don't know what I think about that, perhaps so, but I'll mention it just so you can think about it. Matthew chapter 3, th- verse 33 tells us of this parable of the leaven. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that's leaven, is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. I use the Holman Christian Study Bible there because they like to put units in good old English terms that I understand instead of Hebrew Hebrew and Greek terms, which I don't understand. Now, this idea of yeast being in bread or being in flour and leavening the bread, yeast has two symbolic meanings in the Bible. It usually means evil. For example, at the Pass, even the, the modern Jewish Passover festival, the kids run through the house and try to get rid of all the yeast because the yeast is evil. But here, the yeast does not mean evil. It means growth. It starts out small, and then it just spreads and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says the yeast refers to the all-penetrating and assimilating quality of the gospel. Some people actually take it to mean it's evil spreading through church. I think that's highly pessimistic. I can't believe Jesus would be telling them that evil going to spread all the way through the church. I think it's a very unfortunate interpretation myself. Now, some people take the idea of the yeast spreading through the bread as the idea that the kingdom spreads through an individual person's life. NIV Study Bible mine says that by the working of the Holy Spirit through the Word. I think that is somewhat of a westernized American individualistic interpretation. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven in the world, I think, not the kingdom of heaven in an individual. The NIV Study Bible also mentions that it could be the growth of the kingdom in the world and Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown agree with that, and that's what I think it is, the, gro- the growth of the kingdom through, in in the world through, by the working of the Holy Spirit through the Word. Now, this woman that put the yeast into the bread, I don't think she symbolizes anything. Some people think it represents the church because the church has got to be the one that is the active agent to, to initiate the planting of leaven in the in the world. I don't. I don't think that we need to do that. I like to say, find the main point of the parable and realize that most of the details in the parable are just that—details, so you can tell a story. Parables got one one main point, as all the hermeneutical experts tell us. Let's go to Matthew 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he would not speak anything to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, remember, what Jesus is telling the crowds, he's in a boat telling them seven parables, or eight, depending on how you count his teaching there in Matthew 13 from the boat. Now, why was he telling them Parables, because the people in general were not ready to hear the full spiritual truth of what he's trying to say. Also, he veils his teaching so that the bad guys, the Pharisees and Sadducees, will not bear full judgment because they are not confronted directly with the truth. A lot of people say that about parables, but I got to say, you know, Jesus did miracles in front of the Pharisees, thus increasing their judgment. So I'm not really sure that's the main point. I think the best reason for him using parables was that the authorities, the Pharisees, the religious authorities, could not put Jesus in jail, get him in trouble. Jesus said, just tell him a story, what's the problem? And it would be hard for the Pharisees to really get at the point of what Jesus was saying in order to get him in trouble. And of course, Jesus is still, this is early in his ministry, he's still concerned about being prematurely proclaimed Messiah, thus messing up his ministry big time. Now, Jesus told the crowd all these things in parables, but this was just to this day in the boat, according to John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. In other words, this was not a general statement. This is just talking of this this particular boat preaching incident, because actually Jesus preached before and after straightforwardly without parables at all. So it depended on the situation. And here, Jesus, with that big crowd, he decided to speak in parables. But sometimes he spoke Without parables, as John Gill says. Now, here in this verse, in verse 35, Matthew says that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. What prophet said that? Well, this is interesting. This comes from Psalm 78.2, according to the NIV note, uh, marginal note. Psalm 78.2 says this. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past, which is a rough quote. That sounds like, I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And Psalm 78, 2 says, I will speak mysteries from the past. So, who wrote Psalm 78, 2? guy named Asaph. Now, Asaph is actually called a prophet in 1 Chronicles. Now, Matthew says this was a fulfillment of a prophet's speech. Asaph is called a prophet in 1 Chronicles 25, verses 1 through 2. David and the officers of the army also set apart some of the sons of Asaph. Heman and Judothan, who were to prophesy, accompanied by lyres, harps, and cymbals. This is the list of men who performed their service. From Asaph's sons, Zachar, Joseph, Nathaniah, and Asarela, sons of Asaph, under Asaph's authority, who prophesied, there's the word prophesied, who prophesied under the authority of the king. So Asaph is explicitly said to be a prophet, and Matthew quotes from him. This is kind of an obscure obscure point here. Matthew was apparently familiar with this as the Holy Spirit inspired him. So anyway, this parable idea of Jesus speaking in parable was declared from the Old Testament. Let's read the parallel passage in Mark 4, verse 33 through 34. He would speak the word to them with many parables like these as they were able to understand. And he did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he would explain everything to his own disciples. So the crowds were getting parables in this situation and the disciples were getting straight out interpretation. Matthew 13, verse 36. Then he dismissed the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, Explain the parable of the weeds in the field to us. That's the the wheat and the tares. They didn't mention the parable of the uh, sower and the seed, apparently, which is at the very first part of Matthew 13 in the previous audio. Apparently the disciples figured that one out okay. Wheat and the tares are a little bit obscure to them. Now, why did Jesus dismiss the crowds and go into the house? Well, it's, it might have been he was finished. He was tired, maybe. Maybe he wanted to go in and have some private instruction with his disciples, but that's what he did. And, of course, that house is Peter's and Andrew's house at Capernaum, where Jesus based his ministry from, his Galilean ministry from. So he went out of the boat and went into the house. Now, the disciples, as I said, didn't ask about the parables of the sore of the sea. They also didn't ask about the parable of the leaven in the flour, And they probably already understood them, according to John Gill. Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 through 39. He, Jesus, replied, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Of course, Son of Man being the messianic title that he used, that he called himself. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The good seed is the gospel. The field is the world. And there it is right there, folks. The world, not the church. The world, the field is the world. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom the weeds are the sons of the evil one, that's the tares, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, not the end of the world, folks. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Jesus tells us flat out that the field is the world, and yet commentator after commentator will say that the field is the church. I've heard PhDs in theology say it on podcasts just the other week. Now, these sons of the evil one who are in with the wheat, they're obviously hypocrites because they're not distinguishable from the wheat. People can't tell the bad from the good. And there's a lot of people like that. They smile, they put on a good front, and they're full of evil. Notice that no blame is put on the owner of the servants or the owner of the field. They were sleeping. Well, they're supposed to sleep. They didn't do anything wrong, they just got sneaked up on by the devil here and and bad things happen but they're not they weren't to blame that's a detail and again it's the age the end of the age not the end of the world as the king james has it so as let me repeat this i think that jesus is warning his disciples not to violently fight the jews he's probably not warning against church discipline that's too severe he's probably not warning against future attempted christian utopias of which there have been several in church history they all fail because they're stupid they don't take account of human sin, human nature, and the way God has set up the world. Notice that there are angels involved in this separation of the church, of the wheat and the tares. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. This is another reason why I believe this is referring to AD in and the end of the Jewish age. Is because in the Olivet Discourse, there were angels there too, if you recall. It says the Son of Man will appear with all of his angels as he comes in judgment with his angels. So I think that kind of ties that together a little bit, that we're talking about the Olivet Discourse, we're talking about eighty we're talking about, look, Christians, don't try to militarily fight the Jews who are going to be persecuting you from synagogue to synagogue, flogging you and throwing you into jail and killing you. But don't take up military arms against them, because I'm going to wipe them out, which he did in eighty seventy. 70. let's go to Matthew 13, verses 40 through 41. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so what will be at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels, they're the angels again, they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. Nothing hard here except for one point. These angels will gather from his kingdom, and if the field is the world, why would you say the angels are going into his kingdom to get the tares when you would Think that the world would not be his kingdom. Well, I think the way I would handle that is they will gather out from his kingdom. In other words, they will separate from his kingdom. His kingdom, his people are scattered all across the globe in the middle of evil people, and he will gather away from those people, away from his wheat, away from his believers, everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. In other words, he'll separate the wheat and the tares while the church is in the world. But what he's going to be doing is separating. he's going to be pulling the tares out of the, the, the world and away from the Christians, leaving the Christians in sovereign command of the world. And won't that be nice? This is assuming an interpretation that this separation occurs at the end of the world. If it's at the end of the Jewish age, the same logic would apply. Jesus would pull all the evil ones away from his believers. Let's go to Matthew 13, verses 42 through 43. They, the angels, will throw them, the tares, the weeds, into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, the blazing furnace is metaphorical for hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, they grind their teeth in pain and agony. They've done. And if this is referring to eighty seventy, you can read Josephus and see what a horrible, horrible, horrible disaster that was for the people that had to go through it. 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom, anyone who has ears should listen. First of all, let's talk about this fiery furnace or blazing furnace metaphor. Where did Jesus get that metaphor from? John Gill has got some options. It could have been Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, and Daniel it could have been the custom in some countries of burning people alive. It could be the It could be the burning of chaff and stubble from the fields. It's a common metaphor. The Jews, are, in fact, always, often compared hell to a fiery furnace. But we also know that hell is compared to an, an abyss, place where it's dark. So the, the metaphors are inconsistent. They're not meant to be consistent. They're just meant to point out one thing. Hell is a hellacious place. It is being apart from God for eternity is awful. Weeping and gnashing of teeth doesn't sound pleasant to me. John Gill says... This word gnashing is declared, it declares the remorse of conscience, the tortures of mind, the sense of inexpressible pain and punishment the wicked shall feel, also their furious rage and black despair. Psalm 9, verse 17 says, This the wicked will return to Sheol. Sheol is Hebrew for the grave or death. The wicked will return to death, all the nations that forget God. Daniel 12, 2 definitely this is referring to the end of the world here, not 80, 80, 70. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, and some to shame and eternal contempt. So those who go to hell are, have, have, are shamed and have eternal contempt. Matthew 8, verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom, referring to unbelieving Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness. There's the metaphor of darkness for hell. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, you can't have darkness and fire at the same time, so that's why... I think these these uh, symbols, these metaphors, are just meant to show us how horrible hell will be. At any rate, at, at, that, at the judgment, either it's the judgment on Jerusalem or the judgment at the very end of the world, the terrorists are going to be separated from the wheat. And don't you disciples try to anticipate God's judgment on them? And of course, the righteous will shine like the sun. That's Christians. And the idea is that we will be vindicated. All the the garbage that people say about Christians, all the slander, all the lies, all the persecution. I think of what they're doing to Christians in China now today, where I spent 23 years, the stupid, moronic, evil government that's uh, trying to ruin good Christians' lives. They're going to get theirs. They're going to get what's coming to them, and we're going to see it and the church is going to be established and will shine like the sun in God's kingdom. Anyone who has ears should listen, says Jesus. Let's read John Gill as he describes the Christians who are vindicated at, uh, this Gill assumes this is at the end of the world and the final judgment, not the 80-70 judgment. This is what he says about Christians. In the shining, dazzling robes of glory, incorruption and immortality on their bodies, having no spot in them or upon them, and without any clouds of darkness, they will be as Christ himself, the Son of Righteousness, with whom and in whose glory they shall appear both in soul and body. And on that happy note, we will close this audio and prepare next time for some more parables and starting with Matthew thirteen verse forty four. Hope you enjoyed audio.